If you have been hanging around uh, for the past couple of weeks, you'll know that as we track towards Easter, uh, we're in a short teaching series titled Worthy. As a church, we're intentionally stepping towards Easter, towards this high point of the Christian calendar with a song in our hearts and in our minds. And the song is this, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. Christ's cross and resurrection, these Easter events are the turning point of history. From that moment, that glorious end when all things will be made new is breaking into the middle where we live. And so all of creation joins this song, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. It is right as we come to Easter to consider again our lives of worship. So Dan began our series by saying that worship is a response. The question, he said, is not are we worshipping? No, we are worshippers. It's built into our nature. The question is not will we worship, but who or what will we worship? And he continued last week by focusing us in on Paul's exhortation in Romans 12.1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice. Living sacrifice is something of a paradox. Life and death do not exist together. So we are called to die with Christ in the waters of baptism and to be raised to share in his life. As Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So we worship with our whole lives, our lives given as an offering. This morning... We're going to look at one particular way that we are called to respond to God. We're going to look and talk about singing. But before that, we're going to begin by reading scripture. So I'm going to ask Jovita if you'd come and read our scripture for today. Why don't we stand for the reading of scripture? Today's scripture reading is taken from Luke 19, verses 28 to 40. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Today is Palm Sunday. While there is no palms in that particular gospel reading, the other gospels picture this with not just cloaks being laid on the ground, but palm branches being waved. So today is Palm Sunday. Some of you will be happy to know that Lent is nearly finished. Uh, today we, we, the church, remember Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We recall the noise of crowds singing and the sights of palm branches waving in the air, cloaks being laid on the ground. Palm Sunday, the king enters Jerusalem. But it is not only Jesus' entry into the city, it is his entry into what we call Holy Week. A week that begins with shouts of acclamation and joy, only to soon descend into darkness and desolation. The king will liberate and rescue, but not in the ways we had expected. His enthronement will take place not in the seat of power. His crown will not be made of gold. The crowds will not chant celebration songs. The king will triumph over his enemies, but death will look to have had the last word. His crown will be thorns, his throne a cross. There will be a haunting silence on Saturday. But thanks be to God that as Sunday draws near rumors of resurrection, life has conquered the grave. But that's next week, so we'll get there next week, not this week. That's Palm Sunday. So we begin our own entry today, our own entry into Holy Week, by paying attention to the short account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. There's a tight little narrative found in each of the Gospels, and it's jam-packed with action. It is a moment in the story that warrants our attention, for in this scene, we find ourselves confronted by the sights and sounds of celebration, and we're left with a choice. How will we respond? You might be asking, how does this Palm Sunday text relate to a series on worship, and in particular, to a talk on singing? That's a great question. That's a great question. So here's a couple of reasons why we've gone to this text today. First, because it's Palm Sunday. It makes sense to turn to this text. And because it is Palm Sunday, I want to draw our attention to the events of Holy Week. I want today's talk to serve as a stepping off point for you and for me, uh, you for your own entry point into this week. It is easy for these days between now and Easter Sunday to just be taken up with business as usual, but these, this is a week unlike any other. There are gifts to be had here. Gifts to be had as we join Jesus and walk with him down into the darkness of his death, into the silence of Saturday, and out into that glorious dawn of resurrection. So can I encourage you to take up this opportunity? And the second reason for turning to this text as I think it has some surprising uh, way, in, in some surprising ways, this text speaks to our lives and to this issue of worship as response and maybe even this issue of singing. So we're going to come back to this Palm Sunday text soon, but let's pick up on a few things, a few threads that have been laid, laid down for us over the last couple of weeks. For many of us, <clears throat> we've been around the church for a while and singing has become synonymous with worship. When someone like me, with guitar in hand, stands up and says, come, let us worship God, I don't usually say it like that, but 
Come, let us worship God. Our default, our, our default thought, what we kind of immediately comes to mind is we're singing. We have kind of done ourselves a disservice by losing the capaciousness of what is intended when the church throughout time has spoken of worship. Worship is as large as our lives and as particular as the bowing of our heads. It includes our day-to-day rhythms and our repetitions of set prayer, and yes, even that little daring dance you do in front of the mirror when no one else is looking. So before speaking of singing as our response of God, I want to double down on what has been said over the last couple of weeks. Worship involves our whole lives. It is our response to God, and it involves who we are, who we're becoming, what we do with our time and our money, money and our energy, how we treat other people. It involves the inner orientation of our hearts, our intentions, and our actions. Our everyday, ordinary lives live out and embody our response to God. Worship is built in. We cannot help but make something ultimate and live toward some telos. Consciously or not, we live towards something that has ultimate value, whether it be the images of the good life given to us in the shopping mall's stained glass windows or the picture given to us on the sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. We are worshippers. We inhabit liturgies that orient us toward a picture of the good life. And the very structure of our lives is call and response. Call and response. We are called into being Our lives constitute the response. With that being said, however, we do gather like this to worship God. We do. People like me and Rob and the priest down the road do stand up in front of people like you, the congregation, and say, come, let us worship God. That's how I usually would say it, a little bit more conviction. And these words do mean something particular at this moment. Worship is the right word to use as we gather to speak of particular activities and participate when we gather as the people of God. Our lives are drawn together and offered up in and through acts of worship. It is with intentional ritual actions like the raising of hands and voices that we take our everyday ordinary life, our sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life, and present it to God as an offering. Yes, worship involves all of who we are, but who we are is gathered up in the particularity of embodied actions. The bowing of our heads in prayer, the kneeling in surrender, the shout of praise, the opening of our mouths in confession, the coming to the table to partake of bread and wine, and the lifting of our voices in song. So the priest says, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And the congregation says, it is right to offer Thanks and praise. We should do that. Okay, your response is, it is right to offer thanks and praise. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to offer thanks and praise. It is indeed right, the priest says. We could build that in. We just have to tell Dan. He didn't know that, but yeah. It is indeed right to offer thanks and praise, and we need these intentional rituals, these ritual actions to gather up our lives before God And offer them in thanks and praise. And we also need these rituals, the bread and wine and the water and the bells and smells, to form and shape and nourish our faith. One writer helpfully calls these ritual actions intensive liturgy. 
Intensive liturgy is what happens when Christians assemble to worship God. Within the intensive liturgy, we meet with the living Christ. We are taught, sustained, and fed. On the other hand, extensive liturgy is what happens when Christians leave the assembly to conduct their daily affairs. We are sustained and fed precisely in order to go into the world. These two kinds of liturgy are wholly dependent on the other. Extensive liturgy, our sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life. Intensive liturgies, word, table, song, prayer, bowing down, lifting hands, lighting candles. In worship, an intensive liturgy, we gather to tell to sing, to enact God's story of the world from its beginning to the end. It is in this intensive liturgy of the church that a compelling vision of the kingdom is made visible to us, to the worshipper. This vision or this ultimate shape of reality comes to bear upon us in and through song and sacrament, movement and melody, images, icons, rhythms, rituals, and the proclamation of scripture. Worship is formative. And these liturgies, they are the crucial incubator for hatching Christian understanding, Christian accounts of the world. So that to say, ritual actions matter. They shape us. They form us. Not just to think a certain way, but to love rightly. True biblical worship is not merely mental assent to an idea. Christianity cannot be reduced to a set of beliefs. When we stand in the presence of God, we not only engage in the moral and intellectual activity of assigning values, more immediately and dramatically we do something with our bodies. Ritual action as well as decision making is an inalienable part of worship. Worship is an activity of human beings in their complete selfhood, flesh, inextricable unity with spirit. The holy God demands of us a total response. Worship is the whole of our lives offered up to God. We make this explicit through embodied actions, intensive liturgies of bread and wine, prayer and confession, and yes, indeed, singing. So I've started here. Our lives, I've talked about intensive liturgies, extensive liturgy, intensive liturgy. I want to talk then about one way in which we express our gratitude to God. One way we gather up our lives and offer them to God. Wherever the church gathers and in whatever form, you will most often hear the lifting of voices in song. Whether it be the quiet little suburban Anglican church down the road or the much louder one nearer the church, uh, nearer the city, sorry. Um, you'll find the church singing. We are a singing people. The people of God throughout time respond to God with song. Now, we could dive into this question, why do we worship? Why do we sing, I should say? We could approach this sociologically, psychologically, physiologically, and I'm sure that we'll find, if we do, some wonderful health benefits, some really great social goods that come from us singing together, especially singing together socially, um, as a group, together. However, I feel compelled today not to go down that road, but simply to focus on the fact that the church does respond to God in song. Throughout time, the people of God have lifted their voices to declare that he is worthy to be worshipped. The church does sing. 
One writer who happens to be a friend and colleague of mine says this quite strongly. To be Christian is to sing. That is pretty strong, actually. To be Christian is to sing. The idea is deeply rooted in Scripture, which not only encourages and even commands believers to sing, but includes many instances of singing and many songs and fragments of songs. It is true. Scripture overflows with song. There is song at the beginning when God creates. There is song at the end when all creation responds with a loud, resounding, worthy is the Lamb, holy, holy is the Lord. So if we pay attention, if we listen with open hearts, again and again we hear the call to lift up our voices in song as we respond to the Lord. We're invited to sing with those who have gone before us, to put their songs on our lips, to rehearse them and make them our own as we respond to God's saving deeds. We're given songs to sing that help us bring our entire lives before the Lord. We are instructed to make music, to sing joyfully, to sing a new song to the Lord. We are encouraged to teach and reprove one another with song. So Central Vineyard, as we seek to cultivate lives of worshipful response, we could do well to pay attention to this call in Scripture to be a singing people. I just mentioned four things really quickly, so let's touch on each one of those, and I'll do this as briefly as I can. Right, first, worship does not begin with us. Worship is always a response to divine initiative. As Christians, we join a long history of worship, a long history of people who have responded to God, responded to God's initiative with singing. Songs have been given to us in Scripture, not only that we might come to know God more fully, but that we might take them up upon our lips and sing them. In response to God's mighty acts of deliverance from, libera- deliverance from liberation, Miriam sings, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, both horse and rider flung into the sea. In response to the gracious gift of a son, Hannah sings prayers of exaltation. My heart has rejoiced in the Lord. In continuity with Miriam and Hannah, Mary sings, sings a hymn of praise, rejoicing in God and in his saving plans in which she is caught up. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. In response to God's visitation and filled with the Spirit, Zechariah opens his mouth prophesying with a psalm of praise. Praise be to the Lord, because he has come to his people and will redeem them. In response to the birth of the Savior, the angels sing, proclaiming the good news, glory to God in the highest. And singing these songs, taking these songs upon our lips, we remember God's saving acts in history, and we rehearse them. And in doing so, we anticipate God's saving, redeeming power in our own life. In some mysterious way, we bring those, those miracles closer to our own experience. Secondly, it is in the book of Psalms that this history of responding to God with singing becomes particularly pertinent. The Psalms invite us to bring our whole entire lives before God. There are 150 songs in the Psalter, and they cover the full range of human emotion. They give permission to come with angst and sorrow there is lament. They give permission to come with joy and dancing, there is celebration. There is permission to bring our doubts, there are candid songs of hope and trust. 
In the Psalms, human words and experiences have been given back to us as God's word for us. And these songs train us to respond to God in faithful obedience. And while we don't always sing the Psalms, let's be honest, most mornings I don't open and sing the Psalms, I generally just read them. The Psalms actually clearly instruct us to sing, to make music, to even sing new songs. Again and again we hear the words, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Proclaim his name. In Psalm 33, sing to the Lord, sing him a new song. Play skillfully. Sing to the Lord a new song. Psalm 98. I will sing a new song to you. I will make music to you. If there is any doubt that we are to respond to God and his gracious dealings with us by singing, one only has to take a really quick look through the Psalms. Actually, through Chronicles, Isaiah, a bunch of anyway. It's everywhere, this encouragement to be a singing people. We're instructed to sing. We sing in response to all that God has done. We sing because God is worthy of our songs. And the singing affects us. It changes us. It forms us as these intensive liturgies do. They give us a vision to live inside. They change us and affect us, which leads me to something that St. Paul writes in a couple of his letters. In his address to the church at Colossae, Paul, urging the church to step away from the old life of sin and to cultivate the life of Christ, says this, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. He says, don't keep practicing this old life. You need to practice the new life of freedom that God has given you. Take off the old life. Put on love. He is, he is compelling his audience to step into this life that Christ has given them. And as he gives instructions in how to do this, he says this, which is key for us today. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He says something similar in his letter to the church at Ephesus as well. For, for Paul, singing is important. For under the touch of the Spirit, songs can create the environment in which our hearts are encouraged and our minds filled with the knowledge of the goodness of God. Our singing can create the conditions for contrition and repentance. So as the church responds to God, singing together, making way for the Holy Spirit to be at work among his people, we can expect that God will be at work. We can expect that God will be moving and healing and speaking and delivering and correcting and setting us free. And I can testify to this. <laughs> I know this is, my own, um, this is my experience. There have been times in my life where in the midst of the people of God singing together, I've been healed. I've had revelations that have set me free. I have been compelled to leap up and down with joy because I've seen something of God's goodness towards me. And I've been corrected. Oh, I have been corrected. As I stood with the people of God singing together and the Spirit has brought me to my knees in repentance. 
There was this time, I was young. I was with a girl I shouldn't have been with. And this blimmin' song kept getting sung every Sunday. And it was a friend of mine, he'd written a song, and the chorus went, I will obey your voice. I will follow your commands. So each Sunday, I'd be like, oh, that's right. I shouldn't be with this girl. And then the song would sing. I'd be, oh, oh, man, I can't sing this. There was a, there was a, a confrontation as the Spirit of God would go, and what are you going to do about it, son? I will obey your voice. It's like Dan's story he told last week. In the midst of a singing people, he was compelled to offer afresh his life, to come and die, and to lay down and take hold of what God has given him. Um, I did make right. I sang, I will obey your voice and follow your commands, and so that's what I ended up doing, which is great. I'm so thankful. Jenna is way better. Anyway, um, (laughs) this experience is not just Dan's or mine. If we go back to um, the early church father, Augustine, it's a pretty big name, pretty big name, Augustine. In his confessions, he recounts a similar kind of thing. He says it so much more poetically, though. He recounts the impact of being immersed in the church singing together. And he says this. How did I weep in thy hymns and canticles, touched to the quick by the voices of thy sweet attuned church. The voices flowed into mine ears and the truth distilled in my heart. Whence the affections of my devotion overflowed and tears ran down and happy was I. Beautiful. And he continues, Therefore did I more weep among the singing of thy hymns, formerly sighing after thee and at length breathing in thee, as far as breath may enter into this house of grass. Note the connection between the church in song and the moving of the Spirit. Augustine describes the experience of sitting amidst the singing church He breathed in God. Don't underestimate the ways in which the Spirit of God will take up our singing and do the miraculous among us. Jericho, the walls come down as they sing. Two Chronicles, the singers are sent out in front of the army. They don't even need to fight. God fights on their behalf. Paul and Silas sing and prison doors are open. We could have a whole sermon just on what I just said in those last three examples. We are called to be a singing people. The church responds to God with singing. But let us return. No, not but. And let us return. I used but very poorly just then. And let us return to the text that Jovita read for us earlier today. Palm Sunday. The day Jesus enters Jerusalem, having set his face toward the cross. In the week ahead, his friends will abandon him. The power of Rome will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. But here, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is surrounded by disciples and by a crowd who have witnessed Jesus' miracles. He has touched their lives. He has touched their friends. He has raised the dead. He has healed and delivered There was a buzz in the air. Jesus instructs his disciples to find a donkey and to bring it to him. And they do. They find a colt, 
bring it to Jesus. They place their cloaks on the animal, and Jesus begins his descent into the city, the holy city. Clearly, Jesus understands what is going on here in ways that the crowd will only comprehend much later. In these events, the words of Israel's prophets are being fulfilled. Israel's true king, the Messiah, the one they had for so long been waiting for, have finally arrived. Zechariah says this, this is Old Testament minor prophet, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout to daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly, riding on a donkey. Luke's account Luke's account cues us to read these Palm Sunday events as the beginning of Christ's enthronement as king. We read that the disciples threw their cloaks on the yet-to-be-ridden colt, and they set Jesus on it. This is the, in this gospel, Luke's particularly says that the disciples set Jesus on it. Here there are echoes of Solomon's installation on the throne of his father. The spreading out of garments on the ground is also in keeping with this tradition of Davidic kingship. What is being said is David is the one. I mean, Jesus, sorry. Jesus is the one who is qualified to sit on David's throne. He is the righteous one. He is the descendant of David who, is act, who acts justly, who regards the poor and the downtrodden, who sets free the oppressed. And here Jesus rejects the war horses, rejects the military might of Rome. His power is of another kind, Pope Benedict says. It is in God's poverty, God's peace, that Jesus identifies the only power that can redeem. He comes humbly, lowly, riding on a donkey. And there are two responses to this one who now rides this lowly animal towards his enthronement upon the cross. There are those who rejoice And there are those who refuse. Those who rejoice and those who refuse. We are told that a multitude of disciples raised their voices, praising God. These are the pilgrims who have followed Jesus into the city. They are unknowingly caught up in Zechariah's prophecy. And they respond to God's mighty deeds with shouts of praise and songs of joy. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is their cry. You might have noticed that when Jovita read this text, it doesn't include the word singing. I don't think I'm stretching it too much to suggest that as the crowds waved their palm branches and lay their garments on the ground, that they sung and they sung loudly. And why do I suggest this? First, these words rejoice and praise have wrapped up in their meaning the natural response of singing. Throughout the Bible, this instruction to praise is also often an instruction to sing. And secondly, this crowd, this noisy crowd, have taken upon their lips Psalm 118, a song. This was a well-known, well-rehearsed song from Israel's pilgrim liturgy. And it happens to also be the song that Jesus will later sing as he finishes his final meal with his friends and moves to the Garden of Gethsemane. So the crowd is in song, praising and rejoicing, shouting, singing loudly, responding to God's saving acts in Jesus Christ. I wonder how many Augustines were there that day, with truth distilling in their hearts, with faith bubbling up 
as the people sang. However, there is a second group of people, a a group of people who refuse to rejoice. We know from Matthew's gospel that Jerusalem was not so happy about the presence of this teacher prophet from Galilee. The priests saw him as a threat. The Pharisees believed him to be undermining Israel's faith, leading the people away from the tradition of their fathers. So we read this. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. The sound of people singing, the noise of Israel's joyful song bursting forth was to them a threat. Their song threatened to overturn the order of the day. Their song threatened to dismantle the powers that were set against the Messiah and his way of sacrificial love. And threatened by Christ's kingship, they refuse to sing. They want the shouts of praise to stop. Rebuke your disciples. But Jesus does not rebuke his disciples. Instead, he rebukes the Pharisees. Saying, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Even creation knows what is going on. But some refuse to see it. They refuse to rejoice. They refuse to join the song. And Luke continues, and we didn't get to this part of the reading, but he continues with these words. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus, with tears running down his face, laments the people's refusal. Because the city did not recognize the time of her visitation from God, Because they refused a Messiah who came humbly, riding on a donkey. Because they refused to welcome him as king with their songs and shouts of praise. They will not know peace. 